0: Any links to connect up to you live? It's like, this is the obvious place to put them. Like yeah. That. You got to go through like three or four different web pages before you get to where you need to be. It's like this. Yeah. Page. Yeah, we need help with our website. You know, Randy's always asking for help. So, and I hate to hear myself. I, you know, all the years I've been teaching, I've never like listened to myself because you know, y'all, we, we all think our voices sound weird, and I don't want to see myself on video so i don't ever watch any of this i lived it that's good enough all right so last week uh, we started the new testament and uh, i didn't get finished like normal i didn't i didn't have enough time so this week we're going to kind of do a quick review of what we talked about last week and now this week i hope it's a little more fun because we're going to talk about the the, the English Bibles you know uh, a lot of us have been through d2 and i i strongly recommend d2 for anybody on the fence i'm really glad pam's going and you're going to get a lot out of it uh I've, I've said this for years but d2 really changed my life yeah. so <laughs> i took it back in the 80s uh, greg ax was my teacher which was just awesome back at the baptist temple yeah, Greg taught me that, and and when I, you know, I got saved when I was eighteen, and uh, started reading the Bible. I was reading at work, and just I was reading all the time. I wouldn't get anything out of it. I went through the discipleship one. It was it was good, but I just I knew something wasn't clicking with me when I went through D two and really started learning the deeper. Things of the Bible and, and applications and things. Man, the, the spark plug it just lit me up, and I've been running ever since. So I love the D2. So I always encourage the D2. All right. Uh, all right. So we got the new handout now. While I'm talking about handouts, um, is there a new one today? There is a new one. Yes. Oh yeah all right, um, last week we broke we broke out our little history timeline and uh, they're in that red folder I think all of you have one but if you don't or want another one for today I printed a few more uh, this was our our timeline that we went through last week um, this week we're going to focus on Europe, and so I'm, I'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, all right we let me get situated. All right, so manuscript evidence—you know—I've likened it to a wild boat ride because it's so—it's—it's it's very difficult. Now, one thing I did want to mention again—we're going to review a few slides from last week, so I just want to catch us all up because it's been a—it's been a busy, busy week with VBS and. We may have forgot what we covered. So, back in the book of Daniel, I think this is really kind of key to all of this uh, manuscript evidence. Back in the book of Daniel, with Nebuchadnezzar's image, uh, God actually gave us the history of the Gentile powers that are going to rule the world up till the end of time. He gave us what's going to happen. You know, with Rome. Uh, what well, actually with with the Greece, the Persians, the Greece, uh, Rome took over right before Jesus. And what we see in the time from Jesus till till now really are the are God building those two legs in the in the image of Daniel? So, that's why history is fun. and that was our would you say those are like the Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox or those two legs. Those two legs really signify it's Rome, so it signifies the, the, uh, the ecclesiastical, the spiritual Rome, which is the Catholic uh, Church, and the physical Rome which is the Roman Empire, which has went away. Um, huh. that's, that's the way I interpret the two legs. Now some people do say it's the Greek and the Rome, I just I don't think it fits. Uh, it's, it's the Roman Empire. Okay. So the, the Catholic Church and the Roman Empire, because that's exactly what happens. Uh, well, yeah, it's my time getting get it. In. So we talked about since Jesus' time, you know, the disciples. Uh, right after Jesus, where they go. Uh, I have my map of you know, the Roman Empire last week, where I talked about how the disciples. We don't think about it, but they went all through Europe. Uh, the Roman Empire had had good roads they had good they had a common language of Latin and and these disciples took the Greek Bibles that they were carrying all through the Roman Empire and they met up with all these people groups that were there that were going up against the Roman Empire at the time They were. These are called barbarians. You know, when you look these guys up in history, these are all the people groups that the disciples touched, which created all of these Bible-believing groups. On your handout, I don't even have a handout. Let me grab one. Uh, Well, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be all over the place, actually, but. yeah, I'm gonna be all over this. Uh, I don't follow my hand. I'm terrible about following. I'm sure he always tells me that. This group here, this early group, these are what we call the Bible believers, and this is this is an important. Um, this is, distinction. There you go. I was like Chuck's walking around. I'm like getting distracted. All right. <laughs> The early Bible believers. We're going to trace our roots back to these guys. The early Bible believers, and that's one. That's one reason I made this table here because we, when we talk about manuscript evidence, we have to kind of differentiate the different groups that are in play. The group of true Bible believers carrying around a Greek New Testament from the Byzantine Empire are these guys, and these guys are translating it into their native languages. Uh, uh, while they're doing their business in Europe, we've got the, the the corrupt line that's evolving out of Alexandria, Egypt with guys like Origen, uh, Clement, uh, Panthenaeus, a whole bunch of guys. And they're, they're down here doing their thing with the Hexopola and the Septuagint and we talked about all that. Um, takes us up into we talked about the Goths, one <laughs> of those people groups were the uh, the goths and this is an important for us because this guy translated those greek scriptures from the byzantine empire into the gothic language that gets carried all through europe so that's just further propagating the bible believing line throughout europe does that make sense I never heard of him Yeah, Euphilus is a he's actually mentioned in our in our bible He is? Yeah. Uh, Euphilus? Yeah. Yeah. Which is is interesting, this is a a side note, but since you mentioned it, it you won't find it there. It's in my Bible. No, 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 it it really is. No, this is a side note. Uh, Actually, that's a good, I'm glad you brought him up. Next week, we're going to dive knee-deep into the King James Bible, all the things that went on to get it going. And uh, one of the really interesting things with the King James Bible is the... There's, there's, two, there's two things that are important when I buy a Bible. Well, there's many things, but... The King James translators wrote a note to us, the readers. And it's in... Some King James Bibles have it. A lot of publishers... Like the preface? It's like the preface. There's a preface to us, and then there's a dedicatory to King James those two books are just very interesting to read. So anytime I buy a Bible, that's number one on my checklist. I mean, it's, you know, it's King James and it's Cambridge and all that, but it's got to have those two because they're really interesting. And, and, and then the note to the reader, they mention Uphilus. They mention a lot of these people that I've talked about. If you read that preface, you'll see a lot of these same names you know, John Christom. I didn't even mention him, but he's a big player. In that preface, because these guys are the precursors to our English Bible. And the, and the translators recognize their importance in history. And, and they're bringing that word to us. So, Uphilus is in our Bible if you've got the preface. A little sidetracked there. So, all those people groups, the Roman Empire collapses in 476. And all of a sudden, people wake up and there's no government. And we talked about that last week. There's no government in the Roman Empire. It's a free for all. We enter what we call the tribal migrations, where all these people groups that have their Bibles are all migrating all through Europe. Um, That takes us up to this guy, Charlemagne. He kind of ends that... Migration. You know, I, I likened it to the Native Americans. They're they're all over the United States, they're migrating around, but then they finally the European settlers stopped it. Charlemagne comes along, he stops the migrations, governments start getting set up, and Europe starts looking like this map. Where we've got France, these were the Franks. He was actually a Frank. Germany, Spain, uh, you know, Britain. Our map starts looking, England start, Europe starts looking familiar to us after Charlemagne. He also brought about all the reforms, uppercase, lowercase. Uh, he really helped shape our English language. Because up until Charlemagne, there really was no English. So, type the Antichrist. Charlemagne would be. A good guy, he? he was not a good guy. No, he's the one that carried around the City of God book and and forced conversions to the Catholic faith at, at knife point. So yeah, he's not a good guy. Um, I think that took. Alright, then I mentioned the split, the Byzantine Empire. All, all all this weirdness and and chaos is going on in Europe. The Byzantine Empire is over here, you know, quietly keeping the Greek text pure. It's got this Byzantine text over here. These guys are all doing their Latin, English is forming, the Catholic Church is churching, they're just, it's chaos. Byzantine text is over here. Well there's a split where they officially split off so now this text is not going to be corrupted by these guys Uh, and eventually I'm kinda getting to where I left off last week the Islam the Muslim folks that are pushing up from Saudi Arabia have made it to Constantinople the the headquarters of the Byzantine Empire Uh, and that pushes this Greek text out of this pure little bubble, now it's in Europe. This, it's in Europe. These guys are now teaching Koine Greek in the uh, universities and colleges throughout Europe. One of the guys that is a student is a guy named Erasmus. He's getting in on this pure Greek learning. That's straight out of the Byzantine Empire. Meanwhile, I mean, it's really cool how God's moving things around. The printing press is invented in 1450. And I always kind of keep that date in your head. That's when, up till this point, everything's been handwritten. Uh, We talked about how the English language evolved over time. Uh, You know, that was Wycliffe's early Bible. Uh, the Renaissance period and and just we can see how English is kind of unrecognizable but it slowly gets to where we have it today. And how English uh, is is a global language. is very cool about it? I gotta get cooking. Alright so that brings us now this this list here. um, Let me say a few things here. Whenever we go through D2 we we see this list. This is the list of the seven English Bibles that are the precursors to our King James. And and in D two, you know, we get introduced to all these Bibles, and it's all good. Now I'm not I'm not dogging on D two, but one of the things that that I try to bring out here that that wasn't really brought out in D two are the like, political and social things that were going on in Europe with each of these Bibles that helped bring them about and, and it really when you study these guys you really understand like why why didn't we just stop at the Tyndale Bible? Why wasn't this King James or why, why isn't our Bible the Bishop's Bible? Why aren't we using the Geneva Bible? you know what why did God want us to have to, to keep going until we get this 1611 King James Bible? You know things like that, so that's what we're going to kind of cover today. Uh, we talked a little bit about Erasmus. I mean, this is a Wycliffe. We talked a little bit about Wycliffe that he was a kind of precursor in our list. He didn't have those Greek scriptures yet, so he was still using the old Latin from the Catholic Church. But it was the first English Bible, even though it was from the Latin. And, and last week in your handout, I had a table. Actually, maybe in this week's. Yeah, it's in this week's too. There's a. until on page three. On page three, I list all these Bibles that we're getting ready to go through. Um, so, Clip does the first English Bible. It's handwritten because it's in 1380. It's before the printing press. Um, this Bible. Uh, brings about the Lawlers, because they're the guys that, remember I showed you this little picture how the Bible was so small. Wyko's Bible, he made it very small where it can fit in your pocket. And these guys would take this Bible and cook around Europe and, or around Britain and, uh, and teach people. I don't know if we got to Erasmus. I, I think we touched on him. But Erasmus comes along and uh, he is taught in a, in a, in a Paris university by a bunch of greek scholars that have just come from the byzantine empire so now you've got erasmus being taught this pure word that has just come over because the the islam's pushing it into europe So that's erasmus now who was this guy he was a very educated greek scholar knew greek very well uh, knew a lot of languages he was a catholic priest he was very critical of the church and their practices um he died a natural death in the fifteen thirties. Alright. So what is significant about him? What is significant? Here's what this good question. And this, that's where this goes. Actually, I think I even got another. Yeah. Alright. I'm gonna I'm gonna use a baseball analogy. I'm a big sports fan. Yeah, I'm a big sports fan. Here's the deal there are lots of Greek texts floating around even today. And there was in Eras- Erasmus time. There, the Greek texts that we have have been divided up into families based on where they're from. Uh, wh- where they're from. I'm just going to leave it at that. And that's where we get all the papyri you know, 52 and the codex Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, and and all the different, you know, Codex is a book but are fragments. We have all these Greek things and they're divided up into families based on where they are. Now the Byzantine text, this pure text that I keep talking about as of today we've got almost 6,000 texts that have come out of this area. 6,000. That's a lot. I mean so it's, it's almost ninety percent of what we have is from here. There's a few from the Alexandria we still have. i would be down down here, some on the map. There's some from Alexandria that are the corrupt lines. There's some from the Western, there's some Caesarea. Alright, here's the deal with this. This is the, the Byzantine we have so many of them that they're they're actually called by scholars the the majority text. Yeah. So the majority text. All right. And here's uh, the way I heard a guy, I read a book one time about this, about if you had a baseball game, you got 6,000 people in the game, and something happens on the field. You know, the guy, the I don't know, the pitcher throws a red ball at the second baseman and, and he hits him in the head and he throws a blue ball, something. Something happens. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Wow. <laughs> I, I don't like baseball. So something happens big on the field. So now you're out in the, in the parking lot interviewing people and you've got 5,300 people telling you the same story and they all agree with each other and it's just the same story. You, know, you threw a red ball, the second baseman, blue ball back. Then you've got about 20 or 30 people Telling you a very different story and they don't even agree with each other so which story are you going to believe 5300 the 5300 and that was Erasmus's predicament he's got all these texts from Byzantine down here that all agree mm. and then you've got this popular text from the Catholic is toting or promoting that don't agree That's the illustration. So naturally, Erasmus went with the majority text. Which is the same thing that our King James translators went with. It's the same thing that all of these guys on on our table here of the English Bibles went with. It's the the majority Byzantine text. So Erasmus assembled those? He assembled those. He took all these fragments that he had available to him at the time and put together a New Testament. Put together a New Testament. Okay. A Greek New Testament now that will be used for, for hundreds of years. He did that in 1516-ish. Um, Wycliffe's Bible was like 20, 30 years before. So Wycliffe didn't have that. So he used the corrupt text that the, that is available to him, the, the Latin Vulgate. So, that's why Wycliffe's Bible couldn't be the one. Because it, it wasn't based on the right text yet. It wasn't an English translation of the right line. So now, Erasmus has created this new Greek text. Um, which eventually becomes the, the base text for the King James New Testament. That's good, that's helpful. So that, that's why Erasmus is our, he's our hero. You know, he's a good guy. Um, all right, so, this is our Bible line. We had Whitecliffe at the top. He did it in English, but it was a little too soon. Erasmus comes along. Now we got some good Greek to go off of. This is preserved text. Now Tyndale. So I want to explain this map a little bit more. It's kind of busy, but this is my map of Europe. And this this, uh, comes into play here. So these red lines here are the Catholic Church's control out of Rome these countries. After Charlemagne and, and after things kind of gelled, we've got all these countries here that are that have their own kings and queens. But the Pope is the one pulling the strings or trying to pull the strings behind the scenes. A king is not um, blessed to be the king of a country unless he's blessed by the Pope. And then once he's on the throne, the Pope kind of has a say in what goes on in his country. So they have a grip on Europe, and that's actually the Dark Ages. This grip is tight through the like 1000s, 1200s, 1300s. It's a tight grip. It's the Dark Ages. Europe is, is in darkness. The Catholic Church wants no translations of the Bible other than their own Latin Vulgate. So there's no <laughs> translating going on. So that's why it's the Dark Ages. Um, by, by the time we get to where we are here in the 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church's grip is starting to loosen. And here in Germany, this is in 1517, October 31st, which is cool, you got Luther. So here's Martin Luther in Germany. He translates from the Vulgate into German, and now people are able to read the Bible. So now they're seeing that the Catholic Church is teaching us the wrong things. So Germany, their grip loosens. Mm -hmm. The same thing happens in Belgium and Switzerland and their grip starts loosening. And that's about the time that our our next set of heroes comes along which is Tyndale. I think I got a slide. There's King Jimmy. I'm getting ahead of myself here. Alright, so we have Tyndale, Coverdale, and Rogers are three guys, Bible believers, that have left England and went to Belgium because the Catholic Church has loosened their grip and they're able to do their translating work. So that's, that's where we're at here. So with William Tyndale, he comes along. Uh, Alright, this is where I'm going to, what you're going to hear from me today will be a little different than what you've heard probably anywhere else. Uh, let me get a drinky here. A few years ago, I really got into the kings and queens of, of Europe. Uh, it was actually during COVID. I'd read Francis Schaeffer's book, of, uh, How, How Then Should We Live? I don't know if anyone's read that, but it's, it's a good book. They kind of introduced me to this concept. All right, so when you study the kings and queens of Europe, in, independently of the Bible, it's, it's interesting. It's very interesting. But then when you overlay what God was doing with the English language and, and bringing our Bible about, it's, to me it's fascinating. It's, it really makes things make sense. So, these are the kings and queens that are over England at the time of the our Bibles are being formed. We've got Henry VIII, we've got his daughter Mary, his daughter Elizabeth, and then James, which comes out of kind of left field out of Scotland. So that's that's the key, and I'm, we're going to kind of go through. I'll explain this a little more. So first, let's start with Henry VIII. We've all heard of Henry VIII. This is the famous picture. I got to pose as him a few years ago. Uh, King Jimmy. I was at the Renaissance Festival, and I, they had a Henry VIII cutout. Man, I got to get my picture behind that dude. So that's King Jimmy. So now Henry. Here's the deal with Henry. Yeah, the, when Henry takes the throne, we, I don't know what you heard about Henry VIII. Uh, he is a character. But he was an. Actually, he reminds me of somebody like Nebuchadnezzar that that Steve just covered. He's a bad king that God uses mightily whenever God wants to use him, and, uh, and that's why I put this verse in Proverbs twenty-one one. That, that's the verse in Proverbs that says that a king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and the, and the Lord just moves that king to do whatever God wants. Yeah. Whether he's a Nebuchadnezzar, a Sennacherib, or whoever, or a Henry VIII, or an Obama, or a Biden, or whoever. Whoever's on the throne, God will use them for his glory. Uh-huh. So that's what happens with, with Henry. Now, here's Henry is here, Henry VIII. He's on the throne in England. He is a good Catholic boy. He's, he was raised Catholic, he's in cahoots with the Pope. And he hates all this business going on over here The the Reformation has started now. Because Luther brought about the Reformation. This thing called the Reformation is starting, which I defined it on your handout. The Reformation are people, on that first page, Protestants, who are also called. Now that they have the Bible in their own language, they're reading what the Bible says, and they're realizing that what they're being taught by the Catholic Church ain't it. So they're wanting to clean things up. They're wanting to reform the Catholic Church to get rid of some of the doctrines. So Henry VIII, he's not having it. He he's not down with the Reformation, and he's got this you know he's got this line. He's still reporting to the Pope. He hates Luther. He hates Tyndale. Pope loves Henry. Henry loves the Pope, but Henry loved the ladies. Uh-huh. and Henry needs a son to succeed him so meanwhile I had to throw this slide in because this is a key thing uh, Henry has an assistant that's kind of whispering in King Henry's ear and he's a Protestant a closet Protestant because you get killed for this for being a Protestant in England so he's kind of whispering in his ear to be good to the problem, but but you know King Henry's not not obeying. But behind Henry's back, this guy Cramner, is helping bring about our Bibles, and I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. So he's wow. it's cool that he's behind the yeah. throne. Um, but he ends up getting killed. So Henry, he has six women, he has six wives. Um, looking. He, Loves the ladies. He's needing a son. But it's not cool to be a wife because they all got killed except one. He got fed up with them and killed them. They died, whatever. Now where it gets interesting is how God used these women to steer his heart. This lady, uh, Catherine of Aragon, she, she was a diehard Catholic. She was a diehard Protestant. Catholic, Protestant, and they kind of go through the click. And depending on who Henry was courting and who he was married to, he allowed English Bibles or not. And uh, it's it's cool to see how how it rolls out. So with Tyndale, so here's what happened. Henry wanted a son. His first wife wasn't delivering it. His first wife was Catherine Aragon. So he wanted a divorce. King Henry wants to divorce his first wife, and marry Anne Booyen. Yeah, Bolin. I've heard different things. He wants a divorce. Pope says no. Divorces aren't allowed. So, Cramner... She's a Protestant. Cramner, plus she's a Protestant, but she's not allowed. Henry can't get a divorce. Well, Cranmer's telling the, uh, King Henry, why don't you just start your own church because you know he's thinking we'll get something different going and uh, separate from the Roman Catholic Church. So that's exactly what Henry did. He said, okay, Pope, see ya. Now I'm cutting the cord. So Henry now is his own head of the church and it's called the Church of England. Now, Now King Henry is the Basically, the pope of his own church. It's also called the Anglican, you know, because they're the Angles in in, London, in England here. That's that's on your first page of the handout. The Church of England is nothing but a mad King Henry breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church, starting his own church. Now, Tyndale was really against King Henry's divorce. Uh, Henry was trying to use scripture to justify it and Tyndale wasn't having it. Uh, Pope hated, or the, King Henry hated Tyndale for that. Um, okay. uh, and that's one reason why King Henry VIII outlawed Tyndale and, and Tyndale was later killed a few years later. He had him killed. Now also during this time of Tyndale, he's got, there's three of these guys. Like three amigos. Tyndale, Coverdale, and John Rogers. And all three of these guys are in Belgium because it's too dangerous to be in England. Translating Bibles. So that's where Tyndale did his work was in Belgium and these guys helped him. Uh, And Here's a little bit about Tyndale. Uh, Very educated. He was initially a Catholic like a lot of these guys were. Uh, Became a leader of the Reformation. He's hiding out in Belgium. Couldn't get permission from Henry to translate so that's why they're in they actually printed it in Germany working with Miles. Um, We always hear the story how when Tyndale was getting burned, they actually strangled him first. But When they they were killing Tyndale, let me back just a second. In the early 1400's when the Catholic Church was still controlling these countries the Catholic Church had these countries all pass a law saying that heretics tr- translating the Bible will be burned. That's what got Tyndale. But anyway, so uh, King Henry had him burnt. But we always hear the story that as Tyndale was dying, he says, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. That's King Henry. That's the guy that's killing him. And that's what we see happen. And then this is one of Tyndale's quotes that he. He was fervent about breaking the Roman Catholic hold. Uh, these are some of the reasons Henry hated Tyndale, um, some of the words that he used when he translated, uh, which is he, it, this is all this is interesting but I don't have time to go into a lot of detail, but the Tyndale Bible really did kind of attack the Catholic Church like a lot of these Bibles do. And then they also attacked the authority. Um, Think should, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so that's Tyndale. So he comes out with his Bible. So now this is the first English Bible to be printed based on Erasmus's Greek text, the Byzantine pure stuff, and the Masoretic text that we talked about weeks ago. The Masoretes preserved the Old Testament. So now this is a, a good Bible by Tyndale, first English, and it's it's printed. Like this was handwritten. Uh, Tyndale, when he did his translation, he he's the one that came up with a lot of the beautiful language that we have in our Bibles today. You know, asking that you should be forgiven, uh, let there be light. Um, he's the one that Tyndale's the one that came up with the, the Jehovah, using the old Hebrew Yahweh, and uh, Tyndale kind of came up with some thoughts and, and did Jehovah. So that's pretty cool. There's a lot of really good things that Tyndale did that we still use, that the King James translators used. Uh, I don't have time to go into too much of it. So that's Tyndale. 1526. He comes out with his Bible while King Henry is married to a staunch Catholic, and they're not happy with Tyndale, so they have him burned. A few years later, the Coverdale Bible. You know, his divorce goes through, he marries Anne Boleyn, and uh, they're thinking, you know, we could use a Bible. So why don't we get uh, Coverdale? He's got one that he's put out. Not realizing that it's simply Tyndale's Bible. <laughs> King, Because these guys are all in cahoots. They're working together. Uh-huh. So here's Coverdale. It's these good friends with Tyndale. They did the same Bible. So now Henry, <clears throat> Henry didn't ask for this Bible. But his wife and Cramner kind of said, Hey, we, we, you're, the, you're the new Pope of your own church. You should probably have your own Bible in English. So uh, King Henry oh, okay. So <laughs> Miles Coverdale just come out with one. And so this is only a few years after he had Henry had killed Tyndale. He's actually allowing the same Bible back in. It's very interesting. Because he's married to in now. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of pope bashing. And, and, and you know, it's funny too, I don't have enough time to get into it, but it was big in the uh, it was big in the uh, in this time frame in the 1500s to have artwork on your cover page, and and cover, and all these guys put a lot of their own little commentaries and, and little things in their artwork. Um, Coverdale's artwork uh, is all about how great King Henry is, which he, he knows he's a rascal. He just killed his best friend Tindale. Um, I don't have it there. I got another slide. But anyway, so that was Coverdale. So now Henry's okay with Bibles. So he allows Coverdales. Uh, well then the Matthew Bible comes out in 1537 and it's also, it's, it's John Rogers. He, he put out a Bible under a, a different name. So these three guys are getting their Bibles out. Uh, the Matthew's Bible. This is another one that Cranmer was involved in. Um, it's based on Tyndale and Coverdale's Erasmus, uh, Greek and Masoretic text. It's, it's cool. I read I was reading some stories about how they used to get these Bibles into England. They the, you know these guys are being printed. These Bible these Bibles we're talking about are being printed in Belgium and Germany. They they're illegal at times in England. So they would take like. A, They would take like a big book of like a transcript, like legal documents or maybe manifest for business accounting papers or whatever. And they would stick Bible pages between legitimate print. And so then when they they get to the customs port in England, you know, the guys are probably illiterate anyway that are running customs and are paging through. Yeah, it looks like, uh, you know, just paperwork to me and they would let these Bibles in and then they would separate them out. Now they have a Bible in England. So yeah. it's kind of interesting. Giant John Cramner was a big uh, a big deal in getting that going. So that's what he's he's fine. So there's another full English Bible for us. Uh, I don't have time to get into too much of that. Let me page here, So that takes us up to Matthew Bible. Alright so in 1539 is the Great Bible. So what happened is, uh, Henry's third wife has died and now he's sad. Uh Jane Seymour. Henry's sad, his wife has died, he's courting another Protestant. And uh, he decides that, yeah, I do need a good, another good Bible. The Coverdale Bible's not cutting it now, different reasons. So we need another Bible. So <laughs> he's, so, he's such a goof Henry grabs the current Bible that's on the shelf which is Coverdale's Bible it's like the ninth edition of it and uh, christens it as the Great Bible and this time the artwork is even worse let me get to it here where Coverdale stuck a, a little thing of, of Henry VIII on it handing out the Bible to everybody because he's such a good guy Uh, you know all these little things are saying how great thou art so so here you have this guy going from killing Tyndale in 1536 or 26 1526 to like 15 years later he's christening a new bible so that's pretty cool so the great bible is kind of it's Coverdale's Coverdale's Bible it's Coverdale's like ninth edition okay Uh, Because these guys are over here just cranking out, because they have mistakes in them, they have printing errors, and they'll put out different editions. I heard it was called that because it was a big... And it was big, yes. I mean, physically it was a big Bible. Yeah, yeah, the great Bible was big. It was like big 11 by 17 pages, uh, meant to be read in churches, not meant to be carried around uh, in your hand. Alright, so let not see where I left off here. It right, takes us to the Geneva. All right, so here, so then Henry dies. Henry VIII is dead, and uh, his daughter, his he has a son, Edward. He's kind of a whim. Edward's a Protestant because he was raised by then, Am- which was a Protestant. So he's Protestant. So he's all for the Great Bible. He allows the Great Bible to be printed and distributed freely. So during Edward's reign the son of Henry VIII. Things are good. Well, Edward doesn't last but a few years. And then you've got uh, Queen Mary takes the throne. Mary, this is Bloody Mary we hear about. Bloody Mary was the daughter of Henry VIII and that first wife that he had that was a staunch Catholic. So this Mary here was raised staunch Catholic. She was who? Say the first wife. The first wife uh, Catherine of Aragon, it's her, daughter. Mm-hmm. it's her daughter. Henry wanted a son, but these, his first wife put out girls. <laughs> and then the next wife put out a son. So, Bloody Mary that we hear about, Henry VIII's daughter was raised staunch Catholic, <laughs> So the first thing she did when she come to power is reinstitute that connection to the Pope. She brings the Pope back into England. So now all these English Bibles are illegal. She's enforcing death and burning to anybody that's got them. And Fox's Book of Martyrs has chapters of the people that died during this time. A lot of Fox's Book of Martyrs is Queen Mary's doings. Uh, so the great Bibles kind of went underground at this time. So now here's, here's an interesting thing that happened. Under, under Queen Mary, you got a guy here, John Calvin. We've all heard of Calvinism. When, when Mary takes the throne, he flees down here to Switzerland. Him and his buddies. They're kind of waiting things out. And they're doing their translation work in Switzerland. Well, God doesn't allow Mary, fortunately, she doesn't stay on the throne very long. I think 10 or 12 years. And she's done. And, she's done. and then we get Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the daughter of King Henry, by the second wife, which is a Protestant. You know, Anne and Boleyn. So she was raised Protestant. So she severs that line again and says bring on the Bibles. So she's ready for the Bibles. But what happened was, uh, while Mary, right when Mary died, John Calvin and his guys in Switzerland came out with the Geneva Bible. And this is, you know, Bloody Mary's on the throne. The Protestants are all hiding out in Switzerland. This is a very interesting Bible, the Geneva Bible. It's the Bible used by you know Shakespeare, John Bunyan, you know Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, it wasn't approved obviously by the Church of England, even when Elizabeth gets on the throne. I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But the people loved it, and I would love it if I was a person during this time period. So here's why it's, it's called the Bible of Firsts, the Geneva Bible. Uh, it's really the first study Bible. The Geneva Bible is loaded with notes and commentaries, like like our Bibles today. When we open our Bibles, you know our columns. I actually have a picture of it coming up. Yeah, this is the Geneva Bible. It has all these notes to the side, just like we're used to. Uh, it has the, each verse is a different paragraph or, or new line. It has paragraph marks. It has the italics. Uh, this is like a Bible we are used to. The Geneva Bible. This was like you know epic at the time. They, they also went with a cool the cool kids are using this new Roman font. All the old Bibles were printed like the Tyndale and the Coverdale. They're all printed with this very heavy ink gothic print. But now we're using the new cool Roman print in the Geneva Bible. So everybody's just loving the Geneva Bible. Got a lot of good notes. Uh, But it was extremely, this is John Calvin, you know, Calvinism. It was all the commentaries and notes are just loaded with like incendiary comments about kings, uh, authority, the Roman church. You know, things like, things that are persecuting them, which makes sense. So because of that, when Elizabeth gets on the throne, even though she's a Protestant, the daughter of King Henry. She, even though she's friendly toward this Bible, they don't like it because of the, the, the commentary and the language. Um, so, But it's a book of firsts. Uh, first used chapters. Each verse is a new line. Lots of comment. They had maps in it. That was unheard of up until the Geneva Bible. You know, Like we have maps in our Bible. The Geneva Bible had that and cross references. It's the first Bible brought to America. The Pilgrims and the Puritans and the Quakers—they're all carrying this Geneva Bible. It's on the Mayflower. It's on the Mayflower. This is the first Bible brought to America. Uh, we had versions printed here in Massachusetts and the Massachusetts Bay Colony and all that. So, it's a very significant Bible. The co- the uh, artwork is very different. It doesn't show kings. It shows the apostles, and each one has a key because we all have the keys. It ain't like the king is dishing out anything. It's just a good Bible for the people. The people loved it. However, well, yeah, people, people loved it. I'm going to leave that. But now something cool that's kind of going on at the same time. You know, this is Scotland, the north end of the island of England. You know, have got England. It's actually two countries. While well, all this is going on in England, they got a new king up here, a guy named King James the Sixth. Which, which is our King James. He is actually King of Scotland. Now, Scotland had previously cut the cord with the Roman Catholic Church during King James's time. We'll talk a lot about James next, next week. So, uh, James, James liked the Geneva Bible. Thought it was pretty cool. And he actually even uh, signed a thing saying, we're going to make a Scottish version. He didn't speak English. We're going to make a Scottish version of the Geneva Bible for Scotland. So when the translators, whenever we get our Bible, it wasn't a new concept to James, but we we'll talk about that next time. i gotta, I got to cook. Wow. All right. So the Geneva Bible, people loved it. Elizabeth's on the throne. It's got a lot of Calvinism in it. Here we go. We're right here. So Queen Elizabeth's on the throne, even though she likes the English Bible, she doesn't like all the Calvinism and all the incendiary anti-government stuff. Um, So she says, "Hey, we need a Bible, because you know Elizabeth is also the head of the Church of England, you know that Henry started. So these guys are not only the king of the country; they're also the king of the Queen of the Church." So Elizabeth says, Give me a new Bible and and use the Geneva Bible, but lose the Calvinism in it. Get rid of all those notes. Uh, It was also a big massive Bible. The Bishop's Bible was translated by a bunch of her bishops in the Church of England. Uh, Be read at the churches. It's based on the Geneva Bible. Uh, People didn't really take to it because. It didn't have the maps. It didn't have all the cool commentary. I think she went back to the Gothic print. So that's the Bishop's Bible. That's where Elizabeth in English. Yes. Okay. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pause here for a second. So you look at this list. It's like, why didn't God just stick with Tyndale's? Why didn't he stick with the Great Bible? Why didn't he stick with any of these? Because we got multiple things going on. You know, like obviously with. A lot of these are translated by a single guy. And, you know, and, and in Proverbs, we have many times that in, the, in the safety, safety is in the counselors. You know, anytime we make decisions, we should always have a network of counselors involved in the decision. So I don't think God would allow a Bible based on a single guy's translation. We're going to need a committee to do this. We're going to need a lot of counselors. And none of these really had that except the bishops, um, but this is under a queen. And I don't think God's going to allow his word to be put out under, you know, no fence ladies, but under queen. Because in, in the lips of a king is power. You know, so it's going to be king. Plus it's James. Who's Hebrew is Jacob. So that's kind of making sense. And at the same time, you know, like Steve mentioned, the English language is still forming through these guys. You know, that's why I showed you the slide. Wycliffe's English is unrecognizable to us and it's kind of slowly evolving until it gets to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is an interesting study of herself. She was like she was a virgin, chaste her whole life, supposedly. She was a virgin. That was her claim to fame. She is a chaste virgin ruling England. This is when morals uh, purity, uh, the chastity and all this stuff is very respected. You know, she's really worshipped by the people as being an, an example of a, you know, a, a religious, pious, good woman with good values. So, under Elizabeth, the English language is in its purest state. And you know, we st- talk, still talk about the Elizabethan language that was going on during Queen Elizabeth. Um, so, to me, you know, the English language is now ready. She dies in 1603. Elizabeth does. Uh, The language is ready. The versions are ready. We've got everything ready to go. We just need a king to pull the trigger and make it happen. And that's what we get with James. With King James. Uh, I want to do just a parenthesis here. All these Bibles that we've talked about. I, I actually found this calculator on a European site. Uh, they all cost around 700 bucks. They were very expensive for the common person. This this is a little converter. In 1550, a Bible would be equivalent to purchasing a cow or six stones of wool or wheat. I mean, it's very expensive to have a printed Bible. So I just stuck it on here. So enter King James. Related to Henry. Here's what's interesting. Uh, I won't get into all the detail, but these, uh, France, France, uh, Ireland, Scotland, these, these guys are a little league of nations all through like the Middle Ages. Uh, they're all related. These guys are all related to each other. Um, sometimes they're too related and they get a lot of deformities because there's a lot of incest going on in these kings. Um, when, when Elizabeth dies, that's the end of Henry's line. So they've got to go way back to Henry VI, I think it is. And he actually had a daughter, Margaret, that was related to Henry. So it's, it's like a distant cousin is a guy named James VI out of Scotland. So they say, James, you're a distant cousin to Elizabeth. You're the closest we got. So none of them had children? None of them had Elizabeth any boys. Right. None kids. of them had boys. But they didn't have girls that could be a queen either? Uh-uh. Okay. They had none. Because Elizabeth, that was, you know, she was chaste virgin. She had Mary. no kids. Mary died. She had no kids. So they were like headless. They had no king or queen in England. Huh. Which is cool. I think God did that on purpose. Because mm-hmm. we need to get this pool out of here. Their own self-righteousness, they didn't leave, produce the line. Yes. And the, and the line they did have was had some corrupt roots. Hmm. So the closest kin they got is James, King James VI. There's a lot of Jameses back in Scotland. He Now Scotland had earlier broke that red cord to, to the Catholic Church. So they were, they were doing their own thing. They're the Scottish Kirks. They had already established their own church. James comes from a, we can talk about him more next week, but King James came from a very troubled family. His mom was uh, an adulteress, and there was murder and drama, and his mom was such a bad queen that Scotland actually kicked her off the throne and gave the kingship to James when he was 13 months old. So just imagine you are so bad that the people would rather have a baby on the throne (laughs) than you. And which that happened a lot in the Old Testament too. So, but that's good for us in the Bible, in the manuscript evidence. James is a baby on the throne in Scotland. Scotland's a Protestant country, so they're all digging the, the New English, the, the Gaelic Bibles. The uh, So who's really on the throne? I mean the 13 month old ain't doing it. So Scotland is being ruled by different uh, regents and people that are appointed to oversee James and they don't want him meddling in anyth- anything, so they send James to school. Yeah. James learns like nine languages. This guy is fluent in pretty, pretty much every language in Europe. So whenever he gets the phone call that his cousin Elizabeth has died and, and, and he moves down to London, he is 37 years old. Been a king his whole life, and he is ready to go. He's very familiar with the Reformation. He's very familiar with the the uh, English. the English uh, Bibles, the Geneva Bible, because he was actually getting ready to make Geneva Bible legal in Scotland. So he's on the throne now. Um, John Knox was part of the Scottish thing. Uh, 37 years old. So now he becomes King James the sixth of Scotland. He's still ruling Scotland but he now he has King James the first of England. This is his official title when he takes the throne of England in 1603. Uh, He's fluent in all these languages. He was extremely well educated. The nobles and the regents of Scotland kept him in schools so he wouldn't meddle with what they were doing in Scotland. So as a result he was very highly educated so that's cool soon as he gets on the throne in Scotland or in England he gets hit up by all these different religious groups that are bickering that are on the first page of your handout and they're all complaining that they need they need him to do something because we got religious civil war going on and that's where we're going to pick up next week Uh, but what I did do here's the Bible line this is in your handout Uh, this is kind of how they lay out there the text uh i'm gonna get into that so just a reminder the old testament preserved by the Masoretics for us the masoretes the new testament looks very similar the byzantine preservation brings it to us today that's how this kind of goes together all right so there's the note to the king i was going to actually mention that to have if you guys get a chance, if you have a Bible that has the notes, the, the preface and the, the dedicatory, you know, take a look at it this week. Next week we're going to talk about it. Um, so. 1603 he becomes king of England because Elizabeth dies. It's July. She died in January. She took throne in July. Immediately he's faced with this big problem. So he calls what's called the Hampton Court Conference, January 1604, and that's what we're going to pick up next week. And we're going to go in. We're going to dive deep into the King James translators, the Bible, what they did, and how it infects us, and all the perversions that have come out since. So, any questions? There's a lot. I was kind of speeding up toward the end. So now we're up to 1611. Good All right. Job. All right. So, anybody? How would you care to pray? Press pray out. Dismiss us. I get, I get yeah, I gotta get a drink. Okay.